Welcome back to the Poor Pearls Almanac. As always, this is Andy, and this week's episode is dipping into an area we've talked about peripherally, but we're diving in much deeper today. We're joined by farmer and food advocate Dan Kittridge to discuss nutrient density. I think this is an area that we all understand as something that just needs some more attention, that our food isn't as nutritious as it should and could be. Now, Dan has been working to develop tools to assess food nutrient density through the Bionutrient Institute, an organization he founded in 2010. They currently have three labs internationally, testing food nutrient density and building a foundation for a better understanding of the dynamics between food quality, soil health, and more. And trust me, it's not as simple as you might think, and we dive into all the nuances and surprises that come up in their data. To learn more about the Bionutrient Institute, check out the links in the show notes. And as always, let us know what you think of our discussion. Dan, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, the Bionutrient Institute, where, where this all came from. I grew up on an organic farm. My parents ran an organic farming organization called NOFA for about 35 years. So I come from the that sort of cultural sort of <clears throat> homesteader community movement um, thing. So I, I kind of grew up in it when I got married and had not really developed any other skill sets besides farming and realized I needed to make a living. I realized I wasn't a very good farmer, uh, as in my plants were attacked by insects and disease, like a lot of people's plants are. And it was hard to make a living. They weren't, they weren't vital, vibrant, always like vigorous kind of plants. And I was like, not like the pictures. I mean, every now and then, you know, you're growing four different crops, maybe two or three will come out good, but most of them, it's like cost-benefit analysis, not very good. So yeah, I'd sort of been brought up with the organic dogma that we're better than other people because we're organic. And I thought maybe, you know, not using chemicals is a good thing, but <clears throat> if you look at all the plants in nature, they, they seem to grow just fine without anybody doing much work for them at all. And maybe there's more to it than just not using chemicals. Maybe there's like a Maybe there's maybe there's more to it, basically. So I started researching and going to conferences and reading books and you know experimenting and pretty much it didn't take very long to turn my pests were gone, diseases were gone, crops were doing remarkably more well. And I was like, wait a minute, I never heard about all these basic principles in my first 25 years of farming and being part of the organic movement. Maybe people hadn't heard of them also. And so I started an educational organization in 2010 called the Biontrade Food Association with a mission to increase quality in the food supply. And by quality, we mean flavor, aroma, nutritive value. It seems like there's a, I mean, there. if you've eaten a, a tomato from the grocery store in February and you've eaten a tomato from the vine in August, you know there's a difference in tomatoes. And that flavor difference is actually a very sophisticated nutrient monitoring system that you are hardwired with, which tells you that this tomato is better for you than that tomato. Or if you've had a peach fresh off the tree versus a peach from the grocery store shelf, or perhaps a carrot, we know a lot about the flavor of things varies. Um, it sure looks like that connects to nutrition and that there's a, actually a relatively profound dearth of nutritious food in the food supply. So our mission, it's sure, and as we as we were looking into it, it's like, oh, wow, it looks like when the soil's healthier, the plants are able to build more nutrients into their bodies and then become better for us. And wait a minute, if the plants are healthy and then they don't need insecticides and fungicides or fertilizers, then we can obviate the need for those things. And if they're more nutritious for us, then maybe we don't need pharmaceuticals and um, medical devices. And like, 
like, wow. So it looks like if we could get food to be more nutritious, like these carrots taste good and tomatoes taste good, that could have profoundly positive effects on the environment, ecological function, climate, as well as human health, chronic disease, et cetera. And so we founded the organization in 2010 to educate about those ideas and concepts. Primarily, originally, it was about how to work with nature, how did nature evolve plants to grow for the past you know, 300 million years before God invented fertilizer on day six, I guess it was. I'm not quite sure when God invented fertilizer, but it was, seems to be a few hundred million years there before, <laughs> before fertilizer yeah, was invented. He was, ha- he was having that like Sunday hangover, I think was going on. <laughs> something I like don't that. know what exactly, but... It's like hit the easy button. Yeah. There, was a, there was a while there where where, where it was insecticides, fungicides, and uh, synthetic fertilizers were not part of the equation and plants were doing just fine. So maybe there's maybe we don't need all that stuff. Yeah, first few years was education about how to. Um, and then starting in 2017, we started working on this concept of, you know, being able to define it and build instruments to test it. The basic idea being that if you could go to a grocery store and there were like three different kinds of carrots on the shelf, you had your Bunny Love and you had your Calorganic and you had your, you know, Bolt House Farms or whatever. <clears throat> and you could flash a light at one of them, beep, beep, 20 out of 100, flash the light at the next one, beep, beep, 40 out of 100, the third one, beep, beep, 80 out of 100. From a nutritional standpoint, and they're all roughly a buck fifty a pound or two bucks a pound, whatever they are. Would you likely take the one that's eighty or forty or twenty? And our thought is, pe- people, if they were provided with that knowledge, might choose the eighties and leave the twenties. And if that were to happen in large scale, we could have an economic incentive to the producers to focus on nutrition as opposed to volume, and then we could sort of you know use enlightened self-interest of economic profit to drive these sort of ecologically beneficial outcomes as well as human health beneficial outcomes. So that was a bit of a rambling introduction, but maybe covers a couple bit, couple bases there for you. Yeah, yeah, it does. The first thing that I thought of when you were telling the story is when uh, my partner and I started living together and I had a garden, she was like, you know, all that stuff tastes gross. Why don't, why are you growing it? So I had her, I took some all celery out of the garden gross, and exactly. cut it up. Beets don't taste good. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. So so I gave her some celery and she's like, celery has flavor. I didn't know it had flavor. And I was like, well, yeah, like if you buy stuff that's like a dollar fifty a little yeah. bundle and you know it, it looks like white, then yeah, it's probably not gonna have a lot of flavor. Yeah. I, I think that does speak to like a very real problem around how people understand and relate to food is that a lot of food just doesn't taste good. And it's not because the foods aren't good. It's because that's the produce that's on our shelves and that's what we're exposed to. And if that's all you know, then what is your what is what's going to drive you to want to try more of it or to want to do all the effort of growing your own tomatoes if you don't like tomatoes, right? Yeah. And this idea of incentivizing people by saying, if the nutrition is higher, then it's going to taste better is a really interesting way to think about it because I'd never really thought about it like that, but it it makes a lot of sense. Like how many times do you buy fruit like watermelon and you're like, God, I hope this watermelon tastes good. It's like five bucks. Yeah. And like you cu- come home and you cut it open and it tastes like trash. Like unless you spend the time, like it th- the memes that come out that are like, here's 15 ways to tell if your watermelon is fresh, but there's like one for every fruit. It's like, I'm not going to remember this. But like having a tool to do that would be really helpful. And I think align a lot of our interests as consumers yeah. with the the goal, you know, the ecological needs of the places where we grow food because suddenly producing high quality food is related to the health of that ecosystem and if you can't hide it in a bundle of apples or whatever it might be there's less possibility for 
a big producers to sell stuff that's subpar, basically. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I want to push back about the local thing just a little bit because you can be a bad farmer down the street just as well as you can be a bad farmer two states away. Sure. And you can be a bad farmer on a quarter acre just as well as you can be a bad farmer on 10,000 acres. And it's really, it seems to be about the, I mean, the, the, the real rudimentary dynamic basically is that plants are green because they make sugar in the chloroplasts that they inject into the roots, into the soil to feed the microbes because the microbes digest the soil to feed the plants. And that's why plants are green is because they feed the microbes, the microbes feed them. The same way we can't digest our food, it's the microbes inside of us that digest our food for us. Plants can't digest their food. It's microbes that digest their food for them. And so it basically is has to do with the level of function of the microbiome, of the, the, the gut health of the plant effectively determines its nutritional caliber. And so you can be an organic farmer not using any chemicals, but tilling too much, none, your soil is too dry, and your microbes are dead. And you're certified organic, but your nutrients are low. Anyway, you just said something about counterintuitive points in our data we've been finding. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we were talking about that before we started recording. Your data, I'm going to kind of paint with really broad strokes for a second before I talk about your data, because I think it, it points to something really interesting. Yeah. If you're in the like nonprofit or regenerative peripheral kind of space, right? Like this, like I support alternative agriculture in some kind of capacity. There's a a very clear narrative that exists across the spectrum. And while you guys kind of fall under that umbrella, the data that you present kind of doesn't. And and that's and you're smiling now. People can't see that. But I, I, as somebody who likes to go against the grain and kind of likes to pick at that spot, that's like, well, actually, that that really scratched an itch for me. Nice. I started reading about your report in 2020 on kale to get specific on the calcium content. And I'm sure you've thought about this a lot and talked about this a lot. And there seems to be like some really interesting data on it about like how growing methods, like how how farmers self-identify doesn't necessarily correlate with the quality of food in terms of its nutritional profile. So like you have some folks that identify as like a permaculture farm organic, conventional. There's a couple others that kind of like are like in between kind of categories. Right. No-till, whatever, whatever. And and you would think like it would be this, you know, kind of ramp that goes up for like the more anti-establishment type of farming you're doing, the better quality food you have, because that's kind of how it's sold to Mm -hmm. us, right? Like, you know, there's conventional and then there's organic and then there's certified organic and then, you know, permaculture, super organic, right? Biodynamic. And like that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then biodynamic. But that's not really what the data shows. So I, I don't know if you want me to go into more detail, if you can kind of talk from there. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe a metaphor, um, a metaphor is coming to mind. You know, I identify as a Presbyterian, you identify as a Methodist, someone over there identifies as a Catholic, they're uh, evangelical. We got a couple of Jews over here. We got some Muslims over there. Is it your label that determines your connection to the divine? Is like, are all Methodists, Methodists more connected and, and Presbyterians less connected? Because that's kind of like the assumption with organic is this is all, it's like, there's all kinds of Methodists, right? A bunch of people say I'm a Methodist and some of them actually do have a really deep connection. And some of them are just going to be politic on Sunday mornings. And so the same way with organic or with regenerative or with biodynamic, you can have a label that people sort of, you know, 
You can even fit within the structure of the label. But just because you fit within the structure of the label does not mean that you actually have high quality nutritious food as the outcome. You know, there's a, there's like a, there's an assumption there. It's, a, it's just like a it's a simplification. And that's, you know, foundationally what I've been trying to work to bring awareness to is like there's some really high quality organic out there in the market and there's some pretty crappy organic out there in the market. There's some really great local and there's some pretty, pretty, pretty bad local. Um, and there's some great, you know, off the grocery store shelf and there's a bunch of not great on the grocery store shelf. And really, it's not about like your point of purchase or your story. It's about the nutrition and that c- connects directly to soil health and management practices and carbon sequestration and flavor and human health. And so my thought is get out of your boxes. It's not about whether you're a Presbyterian or a, or a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew. It's about whether you actually have a, a connection to God. It's about how flavorful, how nutritious your food is. That should be the point. The point should be the quality of the food, not the the storyline, the the dogma, the, the the ism, the you know the religion, which is a, you know whatever. It's just part of our classical Western reductionist mo- modality, right? We just sort of we 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 just jump into these. It's our training. We jump into these boxes, these ways of thinking. Yeah. And my parents helped write some of the first organic standards in the country in the 1980s. And I watched the organic movement go from this grassroots, like back to land, homesteaders wanting to unplug from the, you know, the dominant paradigm to start and turn into something. People start to want it. Uh-oh, it's getting big. The companies who want to try to control it. Government comes in, takes it over, hands it over to the companies. It gets watered down. It's a binary standard. You are organic or not organic. And life is not binary. It's not like you're, you know, you're healthy or you're dead. You're like, you're somewhere in between, <laughs> right? I like that example. <laughs> well, it's just like, it, it, life is not binary. You know, life is, it's, yeah. it's not good, bad. Everything's on a continuum somewhere. And so most carrots, yeah. it looks like, are between the 15th and the 40th percentile of what's possible. Like we look at the, we look at the bell curves and 80% of them are between 15 and 40 out of 100. So the vast majority of the carrots that you get are relatively poor in relation to what they could be. And that means organic carrots. That means local carrots. That means biodynamic carrots. They're all, we've looked, we've looked, we've said people that use mulch, people that don't don't till, people that use inoculants, people that use different varieties, people from the Northeast, from the Southwest. We've tried to break it all out. And like, you can't find a pattern based on an identity that connects to nutrient levels. And so it sure looks like it's the actual health of the soil, not the not the label that's the connector point. Maybe did I make that? I think I probably made that point sufficiently. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. What's interesting in your data, though, to kind of go back to this, like picking at this yeah. issue of like, inc- I don't want to call it inconsistency because that's not the right word. I guess rather something that points to like a, a deeper conversation is that, like for example, uh, the, in the regenerative kale. Mm-hmm. Is scored basically the same as conventional, yeah, which is really interesting. But then also you break it out by like process, so like broad forking showed an increase in calcium of about twenty percent. Mm-hmm. Now I, I'm curious what you think about like wh- basically what is the takeaway at this point, or is the idea that when you're talking about soil health, that the the window that we've been studying or you've been studying to this point is just so small that we need 
generations before soil is healthy enough for carrots to be in that 80 to 100%, for example? You can do it in one year. You can transform dead dirt to living soil. It's not hard. You just have to know what life needs to function. It's about it's about creating an, an environment where the microbes can function well. Because the microbes reproduce really rapidly. And if as long as they have what they need to, to, to run, they'll go and, and things will grow well. They need air to breathe. So that might be why broad forking would be good. Because if you've got subsoil compaction, there's no oxygen and they asphyxiate, they die. So you may be really proud of yourself because you did your lasagna garden bed and you had a, like a really tight, tight, you know, lawn and you put some mulch down and you planted into it. And that lawn is still really tight and the roots can't reach down. The microbes can't breathe. And you're feeling damn proud of yourself. You're telling everybody what a good no-till person you are. And, and there's no air in the soil and everybody's dead because you are ignorant because you don't understand what the nature, what nature needs to function. Microbes need air to breathe. They need water to drink. They need food to eat. You know, they themselves must be there. Um, and they need a few minerals to build their bodies out of some warmth, sunlight, you know, heat. It, it's, it's pretty rudimentary what needs to be present. And in many cases, one or more of those aspects are not present. And it doesn't matter if, if there's no air, they die. If there's no water, they die. If there's no food, they die. And you can do this and this and this and this, but you miss this point and they're not alive and the system's not functioning well. So it's really about, uh, yeah, we're trying to focus on the results. The quality is the, re the quality is the, uh, the nutritional quality should be the point, not the bandwagon that you've jumped on recently. I'm a soil food weber. I'm a regenerative farmer. I'm a, you know, permaculturalist, like great that you're inspired by these concepts, but have it, you know, ground truth, your inspiration with some empiricism of results. Because oftentimes, I mean, I remember when I was young and I got all, I, I went on the, on the, you know, the yoga sort of Vedic kick. And I was off in Himalayas and in the ashrams and meditating. And I was really proud of myself. I knew I had arrived and I knew more than anybody else did because I had, you know, I had found religion and I feel like that's what goes on in a lot of these cases is people sort of the jump on a bandwagon and the concepts behind regenerative are awesome. But just because you say you're regenerative does not mean you are right. There's a, there's a whole big difference there. I guess then let me ask this question. When you gave this example of carrots being between 15 and 40%, right? Yeah. How come if we have all these people that are doing theoretically, trying to do good practices and understand these basics of soil, why are we still so low in terms of quality? Well, I don't know exactly how deeply people are necessarily studying it, for one, because it is kind of complex. And I would say the awareness is building and building. I would say foundationally, in the organic community I grew up in, the concept of nutrient variation was like, it was not really part of the conversation. And we kind of knew that organic was better, but there wasn't any sort of, it was like all organic is better. It was, it was like a philosophical it, thing. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like, it hasn't been thought through. It hasn't been, you know, contemplated and, and studied. That, I mean, there wasn't even a word for it. We basically created this word nutrient density in 2006, 2007 to refer to the fact that some carrots have more nutrients in them than, than, than others because there wasn't even a word in the, in the lexicon. I was going around to conferences and talking to all these elders and whoever I would listen to me. I was like, wait, there's something here. 
And they're like, what do you, what do you call it? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. There's no word for it. So we, we like, then I went back to the elders and I'm like, can we make up a word for this thing? Because we need a word for it because <laughs> if you don't have a word for it. So you can't have a conversation. Yeah. I think it's a complex question. If you're going to, if you're going to attack it from the sort of the Western rational empirical framework, biochemistry is a, is complex and assessments are expensive. And actually, the sophistication of instrumentation is really just not as far along as you might think it is with the labs. And they don't all test the same way. And there's no uniform database. And so no one's really no one's really looked to figure this thing out. It's like before we did the Human Genome Project, we didn't really know how all the genes worked. Before we had the National Microbiome Initiative, we didn't have that sort of you know suite of overlapping information. And so this is a this is a topic where I think. Finally, there's getting to be some decent sized players in the space, like taking on pieces of the puzzle. But we just don't, I mean, there's not really been any research in this space. No one's really wanted to look. No one's really wanted to know, I think, to some extent. No one with money has wanted to know. Let's put it that way. That makes sense. So one thing you bring up in the data, I think, is kind of interesting is, and this is a quote from the 2020 report that you guys release, is that soil health does influence nutrient density outcomes, but not always in a positive way, which I thought was like a really interesting way to say like, because, all right, so I'll back up with that a little bit. I did a lot of research on biochar a while back. Yeah. Like people kind of overwhelmingly are like, yeah, biochar, it's a good thing. Like there's this history behind it, but it does have negative effects on certain types of soils. And sometimes those negative effects are temporary. Mm -hmm. So it makes it really complicated to be like, I put this down. How come my crops aren't doing better? Is it bad for the soil or is this a a temporary problem? So I don't know if that's kind of where this kind of falls into or if you can, if you remember that by any chance. I can tell you, I have not written any of the reports, much (laughs) less reviewed them with much detail. I'm kind of a, (laughs) got my fingers in lots of pots. I think it's a really important point which is we don't know what nutrient density is. So everything that everything that's in there in that in that, in that 2020 report, basically we're a you know a pretty small nonprofit with a grand vision and running on charitable donations. And you know, I don't like to write grants and be a fundraiser. So we don't <laughs> so we're like That's fair. Been there. People should give us money because we're doing good work. And then we, we you know we've we've stayed alive for 15 years. So we're not doing not doing too badly, but but you know we our idea was we wanted to characterize, we want to, we want to answer the question, is there significant nutrient variation in food? Because that was a hypothesis that there was significant nutrient variation. We had a second question. Does if there is nutrient variation, does that connect with environmental conditions and management practices? Or is it just the genetics and soil type that the scientists who know better are confident is the answer? They're confident that the variation is 5%, 10%, maybe it's not very big. And whatever it is, is primarily genetics, you know, environmental conditions don't have much to do with it. So our question was, does variation exist? Is it significant? Does it connect to soil health and environmental conditions? And three, can you build a handheld meter that could be calibrated to those variations we, I think, are there at a consumer price point that could be used like flash of light, go to the grocery store and get a reading off of things? Because that's the grand vision. The in- intuition is that variation exists. It's significant that it connects to the environmental health, overall system health and that people will choose the better thing if they can. So that was our hypothesis in 2016. 2017, we built our first instrument. 2018, built our first lab, started testing our first couple of crops. 2019, more crops, more soil, blah, blah, blah. It built over time. But because we are running on charitable donations, we didn't have like a full 
massive metabolomics lab where we can look at hundreds of different compounds. We just were able to look at uh, about 10 different elements, copper and zinc and phosphorus and potassium and things like that, and then a couple of compounds, antioxidants and polyphenols. And then we found the variations were like 3 to 1, 5 to 1, 10 to 1 in the minerals and like 20 to 1, 40 to 1 in the compounds. So like this carrot has as many antioxidants as those 40 carrots or this carrot has as much calcium as those three as those three carrots. That's the that's like the, the range of variation we found. And so we showed that variation exists and is significant, but actually just because a carrot has more calcium or more polyphenols does not necessarily mean it's better for you. We don't actually know what the definition from a biochemical standpoint would be of a high quality carrot versus a low quality carrot, because that's a complex question. So that reference, that citation you're putting from the paper, uh, I'm pretty sure Dan Travis wrote that, you know, foundationally, we do not know what nutrient density is. So my thought is, if you, and so this is what we're doing now with, with beef, after we've looked at the first 30 crops from 2018 to 2022, at this shallow level, 10 elements and two compounds, now we're doing beef at a much more complex level. So we're looking at hundreds of different compounds in the beef, the amino acids, the lipids, the polyphenols, the elements, the vitamins, like all kinds of different things. And we're looking at the microbiome from the manure, we're looking at the other uh, species of bacteria and archaea and things in their poop. And then we're looking at the soil and then we're looking at the forage. And so we're basically, and then we're feeding that beef to humans and seeing what the human health effect is of what we think is a higher quality beef and what we think is lower quality beef. Check their inflammation markers and their blood and their urine and so our thought is, if we can find dynamics but in the biochemistry of the meat that a nutritionist thinks are good, and those correlate with, with microbes in the poop of the cows that microbiologists think are good, and that correlates with management practices that the agronomists think are good, that the, that the you know environmental perspective says is beneficial, and then that has health effects on the humans that doctors say is good, then that's a definition of good, right? If So that's why we're, how we're trying to do it is look at all the, look at the environment, look at the microbiome, look at the nutrition, look at the human health, overlay those effects all on each other. And if we find this level and ratios of nutrients correlates with this microbiome dynamic and this human health dynamic, then that's our definition of nutrient density. Hey, this is Andy from the Poor Pearls Almanac letting you know about our Burr Oak Acorn Competition. We're looking for the biggest, most tannin-free acorns you got, with a small prize attached to both the biggest, the most tannin-free, and the best combined, with naming rights as we propagate those selections to boot. For more information, visit poorpearls.com and click on the Burr Oak Competition bar. Let me ask, now, you've been doing this for 10, 15 years now. No, eight years, something like that. You said two thousand. We've been actively doing research and building meters. Twenty seventeen, um, working on the whole concept. Twenty oh seven. Yeah. So, you've been in this we'll call it area for a while now. Yeah. Now, has seeing all the data that you guys have brought in changed your understanding around soil health, or caused you to maybe challenge some of your previously held positions? No, not at all. No, I, I I came into this because I was I had some intuitions about the way I think things are based on, you know, I studied in college, I studied evolutionary biology and, and physics, quantum physics and, and organic chemistry and 
sociology and philosophy. And, you know, I, 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 I studied various fields broadly and I, I like to think I've tried to build a relatively coherent understanding about how the world works. That's for me, was like an important thing when I was young was like, what's going on? How do, what, like, what the hell is, what's going what, what is this place? How do things work here? And so I really, really, I really tried to figure it all out. And, you know, it's like, it's like, you got, we have these silos where there's insight in the physics community, but it's not integrated into the biology community, right? Biophysics is not necessarily well understood. And there's, there's, so we, <clears throat> there's insight in, you know, genetics, but how about epigenetics and nutrition and, there's, there's all these sort of pieces. And so as I felt like I began to understand kind of how the chemistry works, how the biology works, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, I think it kind of works this way. And what we're being told by people who are selling us products, basically, is something entirely different. And so, yeah, I, as of yet, I'm not I'm not at all surprised. I'm not at all surprised that we've got dramatic nutrient variations in crops. I'm not at all surprised that you know the organic farmers are basically doing just as bad as the conventional farmers um that local is no necessarily just because something's local does not mean it's necessarily better um i mean i grew up on a farm there's, there's a couple of basic, basic basic insights here you know having to do with with how nature speaks to us because we say that nature doesn't talk or we can't communicate with nature or whatever that's sort of like the general assumption but I would say just because we don't understand the language. I like to use the example of a bale of hay when I'm teaching a course. And I say, if there's like 30 people there in the room, I say, you know, if if when you guys all walked in here this morning, <clears throat> there was a bale of hay sitting here. I'm guessing many of you would have considered sitting on it, but none of you would have considered eating it. And people are like, that's a, that's, a fair, that's a fair assumption. And I'm like, and if somebody walked a cow in here, she likely would not have considered sitting on it, but might have considered eating it. And they're like, yeah, that's a fair, again, fair point. So if you grant that point, then we understand that different organisms have different levels of digestive system function. Cows can digest cellulose and we can't. Yeah, okay, fine. All right, so larvae, whether it's a Colorado potato beetle or a corn earworm or a tomato hornworm, larvae of insects don't have livers. Fact. Larvae of insects can't digest protein. Fact. When your plant is functioning well enough to take amino acids and complex them into proteins in the leaf that makes that leaf indigestible to larvae. Larvae, all larvae of all insects don't have livers. And so when you have larvae eating your plants, that's a symptom of a breakdown in biochemical function of the plant. It doesn't matter whether you're a well-meaning local barefoot organic farmer or you're a big 2,000-acre carrot farmer in California. It doesn't matter your philosophical identity. Nature is responding to these foundational dynamics. And so because I had studied enough of the literature to sort of – I mean, there's a whole community of knowledge here, right? It's not like I figured this out myself. I just happened to go to this place called Acres USA, which was a conference – it's still going on. They're 50 years old now, but the founder was still alive, you know, 20 years ago. And, and a lot of the elders that had been sort of like the, the, the pioneer thinkers. And it was, it was, it was, it was mind blowing because they, it's like, none of this is new information. It's not new information. I'm not surprised. It's not because I figured it all out. It's because it's not new information. 
we, we, we already know all these pieces. So they're already kind of figured out. It's just no one's looked, tried to put them together into some coherent little box. So yeah, I mean, the, the broader point was growing up on an organic farm, taking the potato weed larvae every two days and knocking them into the five gallon buckets because that was the only way we could keep our potatoes alive long enough to harvest them. I thought I was producing high quality potatoes, but if they were edible to larvae, that meant biochemically they were operating at a very at a relatively ins- insufficient level. Yeah, I think I made my point there. Perhaps yeah, again, but <laughs> no, um, it's really interesting the way you, you present the information that you've collected. It makes me wonder about like my own practices and when I think about how we describe healthy plants and the way our ecosystem looks and the way our food system relates to that ecosystem. There is a real simple way to see how healthy your plants are if you want a number. It's called a refractometer, a BRICS refractometer. And you just take the leaf, you squish it, you drop a juice out of it. And if you're at 12 or above, good on you. Most people are three, four or five. And their plants may have green leaves. They haven't turned yellow yet or not being eaten by insects yet. But just because they're not yellow or being eaten by insects does not mean they're healthy. I never, I never was taught about what does a healthy plant look like. I grew up on a farm. We worked on the farm all day long, every day. There was never a, like, and this is what a healthy plant is. It wasn't even a thought. It was like you got to prepare the soil, you got to transplant, you got to mulch, you got to weed, you got to pick, you got to bag, you got to, you know, it was it was a bunch of logistics. But we never really thought about what we're doing and pushing the envelope. It was it was. I think I think sometimes these are just like the we don't even these are con- concepts we don't contemplate. Yeah. Now, as a consumer, has this has your research changed how you buy food? I try not to buy food as much as possible. Uh, that's part of why I, I'm a, okay. I grew up. I was like when I got married. It's comforting. I'm like, I'm like okay, <laughs> if you're going to have kids, you should do a good job with them. And like one, I don't necessarily want to be in an urban environment or a suburban environment on screens and all that kind of stuff. I, you know, I think we're animals. We belong in nature. Kids are animals. They belong in nature. And B, it's like almost impossible to find good food for sale. So if you're going to raise kids and you think health is important and vitality and all that kind of stuff is important, then you got to basically be a farmer. That was my conclusion. But, you know, that was 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, Does it affect how I choose to buy food? I don't know. Maybe I, I just jumped in and didn't let you finish asking. Them. No, no, no. So, I mean, I'm assuming, all right, so you buy or you grow your own produce, but like grains, pasta, you know, staple foods, milk, uh, so on. Yeah. I certainly, you know, buy grass-fed cheese, buy grass-fed milk. I buy grass-fed beef. I raise my own chickens. I get my eggs from my parents. If I buy bread, I buy organic bread. If I buy rice it's organic brown rice i don't i i basically if you if you come to my house you will not find much processed like i think there's one thing which is like the ambient level of nutrients in food is relatively low fine and then there's you take something which is halfway decent and you process the living daylights out of it and it turns into junk don't call it food so i think that's an important piece of the puzzle too is like a lot of the stuff that's on the shelf that's in packages with labels on it and ingredients, you know, it may say organic, it may say non-GMO, it may say whatever, but after it's been put through that level of processing, it really is not beneficial for you. Yeah, I tried to, wait, was it Michael Pollan said if your grandmother wouldn't recognize it, it's not food. 
I mean, <laughs> but maybe it has to be your great grandmother now, depending on where the generations are. Yeah, uh, maybe post World War Two or post World War One, we started to get these processed products that are really quite detrimental. Um, yeah, the research you're doing kind of, I think, could make a lot of enemies just because, like, you're you're not necessarily towing the line of a lot of the like regenerative space. So I'm curious if you, how that's kind of played out for you and like the support or maybe lack of support from, uh, otherwise I think like a, a, a collection of people that are usually overwhelming and supportive of one another that you're like, well, just because you're regenerative doesn't mean it's necessarily good. What is regenerative? What is regenerative? It's a word that just showed up on the zeitgeist five or six years ago, right? Just because some, I know, I know the guys in California that popularized it, the Kiss the Ground kids. I mean, they just happen to know people in Hollywood and they're like, we're going to put our energy behind regenerative. And they got the Kiss the Ground movie out and they got all this, you know, famous people and money and billion impressions. And it's like, there were a couple of cool kids who were like, had excitement about something and got to hit the, hit the viral meme thing well. And there's buzz around it. There's deep conversation about it also, but you got Pepsi Cola and you got Unilever and you got McDonald's and you got all these other big corporations that are jumping on the bandwagon and state of California is now trying to define it. You know, there's 400 different certifications out there. And yeah, what is, I think that people, a lot of people, I think I appreciate the commentary. I don't know the people who come and listen to me speak are people who are receptive to what I'm trying to say. So maybe there's people out there who don't <laughs> find it very compelling there's a lot of companies, I mean, there's some in the beef project, like we're looking at this whole thing and, you know, there's a bunch of people who do want to do the right thing, who, are, you know, may work for big corporations, but those corporations, for whatever reason, have a, like a, a mission, a, and, and they're like, you know, we want to be able to make claims about our hot dogs, that they are more nutritious and they're more climate beneficial. And so... I, I've been the way I framed it is is we're not against anybody. I'm not against Monsanto. I'm not against Conagra. You know they've got massive global supply chains of distribution and everything else that are not you know could be beneficial, could rapidly propagate these concepts as long as they're happy to focus on quality as an objective. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a million dollar question, billion dollar question. Well, and I think you know, the concept is if you can get consumers to understand that variation exists and it connects to their health and their kids' health. The climate is nice, but it's uh, what are they Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, survival is first. The greater good is over here, level five. Survival is level one. And when you're starting to get people in your family have cancer or your kids got something wrong with your kids, you kind of don't care about much else. Right. And that's kind of it rises to priority level. And so I think a lot of people know something's wrong with the food and there's and they're they're jumping from one thing to the local, to the organic, to the CSA, to the regenerative. They're, they're looking, they're looking for they know they're not getting something. And so if we can come out with a little handheld meter, which is totally open source, everything's transparent. We're not a company. We've got nothing to sell and say, here's the here's the story, ladies and gentlemen. I think if the consumers want it, then the companies will will move. That seems to be how it works. Is where the market goes. The people are trying to make profit <laughs> follow. Yeah, and they try to protect the market to some extent, but but we also have agency. Yeah, you mentioned this beef thing. So could you talk a little bit about the work you guys are doing right now and kind of where your where your trajectory is in terms of research? 
Yeah. So, I mean, as I said earlier, we did our 30 different crops from 2018 to 2022 and at a a rudimentary level of assessment just to confirm that variations existed were significant. And now we're doing a deeper level of assessment where we're looking at hundreds of compounds and hundreds of species in the microbiome and, and sort of doing a much deeper dive into one crop and, you know, ballparking it at about a million dollars worth of is the cost to do the science for that one crop. Uh, our target is about 750 stakes and all their associated poop and soil and forage and management data. Um, we're at about 400 right now. It costs about $2,500 per farm to do the assessment. And we've got farms in Europe and South America and Africa and you know, not, not just the U.S., and, you know, just North America. Yeah. And then now we're starting to bring in the microbiologists and the biochemists and the nutritionists and the agronomists and having them say, OK, here's the data. Use your specialty. Let's start to see what circles we can find overlap. So, yeah, it, I mean, you got to raise the money to pay for the samples. And then you, once the samples are done, then you got to have the scientists look at them. And then you got to come to your conclusions. So I would have liked to have thought we'd already be done by now, but we're not. So um, giving you a promise of when we'll have what I, I should not do. <laughs> Let's say by next year, 2024, we're going to at least have a preliminary definition. I'd be very surprised if we don't. Um, it'll probably be in the peer-reviewed literature perhaps in a prestigious journal because it is kind of cutting edge what we're doing. And then once you've got that done, then you can go to the people that make meters and say, okay, here's the levels and ratios of elements and compounds that we think are the definition of quality in beef. Now, if you want to engineer a meter that can look at those things, we'll tell everybody to go buy it from you. So that's the... The strategy, I mean, we we as a, as a nonprofit built a first generation meter for our and as part of our sort of proof of concept process, um, which could say, you know, flush at zucchini and it'll say, you know, the polyphenol levels in this zucchini are in the 65th percentile of what we've assessed so far, or the 30th percentile, which we thought was good enough for proof of concept. Polyphenols are not quality in the zucchini, that's just one family of compounds. And so we basically stopped selling those because people thought they were testing how good the zucchini was, what the polyphenol level was, even though we wrote it, wrote it and wrote it. And it's all the, it's, it was all written down and repeated over and over again. Why would anyone read it? Come on. It didn't matter. People were like, I got the meter. I'm going to go start testing food. Wait, where's the, where's the beat calibration? We don't have a beat calibration. Sorry. The statistics weren't good enough. <laughs> so yeah, define the, define quality of the crop. And then, you know, support the supply chain in either building labels and certifications predicated on that or ideally instruments calibrated to that. And, you know, the end game in my mind is that, I mean, we've got these smartphones with pretty ridiculous capacities in them. As I understand the technology, there's no reason why one of the cameras in the back of your smartphone could not be a spectrometer and you could not take your smartphone out and flush a bit of carrots and milk and beef and get readings. if. Apple and Samsung and and Google, whoever wanted to. That would be cool. We can't do that until we've defined what quality is. Yeah. And so that's where we're at right now, is starting to define quality on one crop, define nutrient formally. And we've chosen beef because it's a crop with the largest ecological footprint and the largest economic footprint. There's more dollars spent on beef than any other crop on the planet. And there's more acres of land used in the production of beef than any other food on the planet. And so if our hypothesis is that working well with nature, healing the environment causes food that's more nutritious, 
let's focus on a crop that's got a significant footprint as opposed to cucumbers or something. If it's going to cost a million dollars anyways, because it's how much it costs. I mean, it's definitely, from a profit perspective, the right move. So for folks that are listening and they think this is really interesting, want to keep tabs on what you guys are doing, is there uh, social media, anything like that, that you can point them to? We've been just discussing this because I don't engage anything of the sort. We have a lot of stuff on YouTube. So if you look up Bionutrient Food in YouTube or my name, Dan Kittredge, you'll find all kinds of content there. We're trying to be a little bit better. I think, you know, LinkedIn is where all this professional people communicate. So trying to put some of our more recent reports up there. We have Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, I don't know. Um, go to the website and give us give us your email and you'll get the newsletter if you want. Newsletters are good. Yeah, we don't yeah. send them out very often. We only when we've got something to say. We got local chapters. So if you think this is exciting and you want to like come together with other people in your community and you know, work on how to grow food better or educate people, you know, get out there with three fractometers and test stuff. We're doing like these little movie screenings this fall. Um, there's a really cool movie called Regenerating Life coming out, uh, which is talking about the critical role of water in cooling the planet, the water cycle, as opposed to the carbon cycle. Everybody talks about carbon dioxide, but like actually water vapor is a much more potent climate warming gas. There's a whole conversation there, but it's a great movie. So we try to engage local grassroots community groups, but um, yeah, I wouldn't say we have a very active social media presence. We're a pretty small organization. So for folks that want to follow you guys, go on the website, which I'll link in the show notes. Yeah. Go sign up for the newsletter. Yeah. I mean, you'll get, awesome. if you find us on, on Instagram or LinkedIn or whatever, feel free to follow or join or whatever it's called. But uh, yeah. <laughs> You got the Bill Belichick effect. Go, go find us. Go find us. Talk. Go the the social media. What's he call it? The my face or something like that. I can't Is that remember what anymore. He says? <laughs> yeah. Um, if you ever watch his press conferences, he always he. I think he calls it something different every time. Okay. It's like my face. Yeah. Instabook. I don't know. He's <laughs> he he's just trolling reporters at this point. Yeah, Dan, this has been really uh, insightful. I, I definitely appreciate your time, and uh, I'm really excited to see kind of how this project plays out. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, it's it feels yeah. uh, it feels important. I I, I, I think I, it is. A few years when I was younger, trying to figure out what to do with myself, that felt like it was something of purpose. People are like, what do you want to do when you grow up? I'm like, I don't know yet. I don't want to have a job. That's for sure. I, I feel the same <laughs> I way. Want to work for somebody. <laughs> like, I can't do that. So, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, good luck. I definitely am going to follow up with you when uh, I get that newsletter update that this thing is out. And uh, we can circle back, see how things are going. Sounds good. Thanks, Dan. All right, good talking.